This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... And that's a massive step forward for us to show how committed we are in meeting international standards on money laundering and financing of terror, taking steps against those. That's Ismail Momunyat, Director General of South Africa's National Treasury, talking about efforts to fight terrorist financing. Details coming up also. There is a call for international help in setting Libyan elections, and we get an update on the U.S. midterm elections. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. The COP27 World Climate Summit continues in Cairo. VOA correspondent Heather Murdoch is covering the gathering from Istanbul. She says there are controversies surrounding the event. She spoke with editor Kate Pound Dawson today about a few of them. Yes, uh, one controversy that has been in the news since this uh, conference began and even beforehand was about human rights for political prisoners in Egypt. Now, it should be said that Egypt says they don't have political prisoners. They are all people that are held on criminal charges. However, a lot of people will dispute this. And there's one particular prisoner, Allah Abdel Futa, who has been in jail for most of the past decade, who has also been on a hunger strike since April, and more recently, a thirst strike as well. Uh, He's Egyptian and British, and his family, some members of his family, have actually gone to the conference to advocate for his release. What uh, protesters on the outskirts of the conference are saying is that human rights and climate justice are connected, and you can't have one without the other. And that's been a major theme of the conference, that it's not just about taking care of the, the climate, it's about taking care of the people that are being their lives are being destroyed by the climate. So Abdel Fattah was a political activist since 2011, since the Arab Spring, and then he continued to be a political activist and stage protests and speak out for democracy, and even as laws tightened in Egypt against protesting, against uh, political speech. And therefore, he's in jail, and a lot of people would like him out. The British government has also been criticized for not Uh, moving fast enough or furiously enough to demand his release. And uh, a lot of people, high-level people, President Biden included, have said they intend to uh, talk to the Egyptian government about human rights issues, specifically political prisoners. Uh, A moment ago, you mentioned U.S. President Biden. And I understand that there is a little controversy or debate over his presence at the summit. Yes, President Biden's arrival um, is wildly anticipated and should be tomorrow. And uh, he is expected to talk about uh, innovative plans to help reduce uh, emissions with American support. He's expected to talk about legislation that has been passed in the United States to reduce admission and and support climate change initiatives. Um, But one thing that he is not expected to do necessarily is um, pledge actual dollars and cents to developing countries who are who need money to recoup from climate disasters and prepare for new ones. Um, this is a large theme of this conference, gathering money from 
rich developing countries to deal with the problems that mostly affect the poorest communities in the world. And it's a sticking point. It's very difficult politically. Everyone can agree um, on a moral level that this is what should be. Rich people should pay for poor people that can't pay for themselves for climate emissions problems, problems that the rich countries made. However, on a political level and a practical level, it's incredibly difficult. A lot of European leaders have already commented on this issue saying Europe is contributing and planning to contribute more. And in thinly veiled comments, they have said that Western countries need to step up. And when I say thinly veiled, I mean, they mean the United States needs to step up. Um, so there is expected to be a lot of pressure on the United States when Biden comes to talk about if the U.S. will will be contributing money to developing countries. There was VOA correspondent Heather Murdoch. She spoke with VOA's Kate Pondawson from Istanbul uh, earlier today. For the latest on COP27, check out voaafrica.com and voanews.com or find our reports on your favorite social media platform. South Africa's Treasury Department and its counterpart in the United States have established a partnership to counter financing for terrorism across sub-Saharan Africa. South Africa, with the Johannesburg Stock Exchange and the presence of global financial powerhouses, has one of the most sophisticated banking sectors in the developing world. The United Nations Security Council recently warned, though, that international terrorist organizations are using the country to launder and channel money to allies across Africa. Darren Taylor has more. South Africa is trying to avoid being grey-listed by the Financial Action Task Force. A year ago, the Global Intergovernmental Monitor of Money Laundering and Terrorist Financing found South Africa was investigating possible terrorism financing in a way that was not consistent with international standards. The task force noted South Africa has only convicted one person for financing terrorism, despite being a known conduit for channeling funds to terror groups. It warned the country has thousands of charities and non-profits operating with little to no oversight and that business regulation is weak. There is a path for us to avoid grey listing. It is narrow, but... I've not given up. I think that there's a fair chance we could avoid it. Ismail Mamoniat is Director General of South Africa's National Treasury. He says being grey-listed could hamper the country's ability to attract investment and would likely increase costs for South African businesses with foreign trading partners. Mamoniat says ethical legitimate companies want to do business in countries where rule of law prevails and where their money's safe. That's why, he says, the government's working to create mechanisms to make it difficult for criminals and terrorists to launder money. We must do so for our own interests, just our own capability to deal with financial crimes, because they're impacting very directly on the ability of the state to deliver services to our people. So, you know, we've got two bills in Parliament, which we are going to pass by the first week of December or so, and will take effect before February. And that's a massive step forward for us to show how committed we are in meeting international standards on money laundering and financing of terror, taking steps against those. 
Mamoniat says the amended bills will give regulatory authorities greater oversight of money flows. He adds South Africa's law enforcement authorities soon will be able to work speedily to probe financial crimes. The government has invited financial authorities, including banks, from across Africa to engage with South Africa and the U.S. It's the first time that I'm aware it's an inaugural dialogue where we're able to chat and look at the challenges for us to understand what the U.S. authorities expect of their banks and in turn what our developmental and other challenges are. And this is quite important because world trade is dominated by the dollar. That's why the relationship between banks and their correspondent banks in the U.S. and other countries is critical, but particularly in the U.S. Mamoniat says he's not a security expert, but he knows that all organizations need money to function effectively. And if African countries are able to turn the financial taps off to terror groups, they'll save many lives. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. The Prime Minister of Libya's Government of National Unity, Abdul Hamid Dabiba, stressed to the United States Special Envoy and Ambassador to Libya, Richard Norland, the international community needs to help resolve, pave the way for elections in Libya. VOA Senior Analyst Mohamed El Shanawi discussed these developments with Wolfgang Poshtai, former Austrian military attaché in Libya. The current stalemate regarding the constitutional basis for the elections is mainly about who is allowed to run for president. Who is allowed? Are dual citizens allowed serving military officers like Khalifa Haftar, leading civilian officials like Prime Minister Dabeba? What about Saif al-Islam? The chairs of the rival parliaments of the HOR, Aguila Saleh, and of the High Council of State, Khalid al-Mishri, are running the negotiations, but they are not the ones to decide about these key questions. There is no way that the Misrata and the Islamists would accept the hated LNA commander Hefta or Saif al-Islam to run, regardless of what al-Mishri says. On the other side, there is no way that the many supporters of Hafta in the east and in the south would accept that he is not allowed to candidate. The situation around Prime Minister Dabeba is quite similar. Right now, there is a German proposal for another Berlin conference to jumpstart the election process and to facilitate the stabilization efforts. I would say, since the blockades are within Libya and the influence of the international community, with the notable exception of Turkey, on the Libyan actors is very limited, it is highly unlikely that such a conference would bring much success on the ground. Like Palermo, Berlin 1, Berlin 2, Paris, much talk and promises, but next to nil impact on the ground. The Bieber confirmed that his government is ready to do its job in order to make elections a successful process, while Ambassador Norland hailed the government's efforts to clarify its readiness for holding elections when the constitutional basis is ready, referring to the simulated elections done last Saturday. What can the U.S. do to encourage all rivals in Libya to cooperate for having such elections? Actually, not much. Richard Norland had already put his whole diplomatic weight behind the 24 December elections last year. He and several other U.S. high-ranking diplomats and politicians threatened severe sanctions to any spoiler. 
the elections were called off just days before the 24th of December, and nothing of the threats has ever materialized. So there is not much left to pressure or to encourage Dabeba, Saleh, and Al-Mishri. Regarding Dabeba's confirmation and promises to support elections, one must also remember that he himself, his candidacy for the presidential elections last year, in contrast to the that time electoral law and in contrast to what he promised during the Libya Political Dialogue Forum not to run for presidency, was one of the main reasons why the already scheduled elections did not take place. Ambassador Norland met with the UN new envoy to Libya, Abdullah Bathili, and said, We look forward to supporting UN initiatives that enable Libyan political leaders and institutions to agree to a credible roadmap to deliver elections as soon as possible. Would the UN envoy be able to achieve this long-awaited roadmap for holding elections? Well, I don't think that the new roadmap will solve Libya's election problem. The roots of the election's dead-end situation are that no side of the conflict spectrum wants the other to have a powerful strongman in charge of the country regardless of any dates in any roadmaps. The current draft Constitution 2016 foresees in Article 117 a very strong president of a centralized state. He appoints the prime minister and ministers. He defines and directs the policy of the executive. He issues laws. He appoints senior state positions and can declare a state of emergency and so on. I would say the solution would be to have an elected three-person presidency council, Tripolitania, Fezan, and Cyrenaica, with a rotating chairmanship, like in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Preferably, all this in the framework of a federation. I have proposed this presidency council and the framework of a federation already in 2015, while the Shkirat negotiations were ongoing. Right now, reinstating the 51 constitution is already demanded by more and more Libyans in the east and in the south of the country. Maybe Fadi should work a little bit on this path forward. That was regional uh, analyst Wolfgang Poshtai, the former Austrian military attaché in Libya. He spoke with VOA's Mohamed El Shenawi. Talks between the Ethiopian government and representatives of the country's Tigray region continue in Nairobi. The Associated Press says the meeting had been expected to end Wednesday but were extended as the two sides discuss the disarmament of Tigrayan forces. Last week, the two agreed to a permanent cessation of hostilities, which would also see a resumption of telecommunications, banking and other services to Tigray. The deal would also allow humanitarian and aid into the region. The Associated uh, Press says Ethiopia's lead negotiator in the agreement says aid will be allowed to reach Tigray by the end of the week or the middle of next week. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyus Wuhib in Washington, a court in Kenya has allowed prosecutors to withdraw a $60 million fraud case against the country's deputy president, who was elected in August. Juma Majanga reports from Nairobi, Kenya. In granting the request by the prosecution to withdraw the $60 million U.S. dollars corruption case against Deputy President Rigadi Gashagwa on Thursday, anti-corruption court magistrate Victor Wakumile cited insufficient evidence. Gashagwa was charged with corruption in July of last year with nine other people and companies and was released after depositing a cash bail equal to about 100,000 US dollars. He has denied any wrongdoing. Earlier this month, 
Kenya's Director of Public Prosecutions, Nurdin Haji, asked the court to allow the withdrawal of the corruption charges against the newly elected deputy president. The court, however, has warned the accused persons that they may be rearrested in future over the same charges should investigators find evidence. A number of cases involving allies of President William Ruto have been withdrawn by prosecutors since Ruto was elected president and formed Kenya's new government. Juma Majanga, VOA Africa News Center, Nairobi, Kenya. Control of the U.S. Congress was still undecided Wednesday as vote counting continued in several key Senate and House races across the nation. With some expected Republican victories failing to happen, Democrats still could narrowly hold on to power. VOA's congressional correspondent Catherine Gibson reports on what's next when neither party has a commanding majority. U.S. President Joe Biden still does not know if he will work with a Democratic-controlled Congress for the next two years, but he is already claiming victory. While the press and the pundits are predicting a giant red wave, uh, it didn't happen. Historically, U.S. presidents have seen major losses for their party in midterm elections. But Democrats won tough re-election races in places like the Virginia suburbs of Washington, D.C., preventing Republicans from securing a significant majority in the U.S. House. Republican Representative Kevin McCarthy will still likely be the next Speaker of the House. Republicans will work with anyone who's willing to join us to deliver this new direction that Americans have demanded. But analysts say his agenda will be limited by managing Trump-endorsed members of Congress. American University's Garrett Martin. Yeah, I think it's going to be very difficult for Kevin McCarthy to be able to maintain cohesion because let's say in the, in the case which is now becoming more plausible that it might be a tiny majority, single digits, um, that requires a real skill in any circumstance to be able to keep that caucus you know, united. There were also unexpectedly close Senate results nationwide, including a significant win in the northeastern state of Pennsylvania. John Fetterman beating Republican candidate Dr. Mehmet Oz to keep the possibility of a Democratic Senate majority alive. Protecting a woman's right to choose. Analysts say those priorities will be difficult to pass if Democrats only have a tie-breaking vote from Vice President Kamala Harris. American University's Amy Dacey. The concern is that some of the issues that people entrusted, you know, these uh, candidates and what they were running on are not going to be actually reflected um, in the day-to-day. For the second time in two years, Georgia voters could potentially decide control of the U.S. Senate in a special runoff election between Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican candidate Herschel Walker. Some Georgia voters say it's important not to give a mandate to either party. Georgia voter Betsy Nenick. I think we just need to get back to middle of the road. Um, you know, I think we've gone too, too far left, too far toward special interests. 
And they're also aware of the costs of shifting power from one party to another. Georgia voter Heather Packer. It feels like as soon as we get something going really good, we flip-flop and go the other way, and it's just been a back and forth, seems like, forever. So, um, but it is what it is. You know, that's democracy. The final balance of power may not be known until December 6th, when voters will choose between Warnock and Walker. Katherine Gibson, VOA News, Atlanta, Georgia. In its latest directive to the news media, Somalia's government has told journalists to, to stop using the term al-Shabaab in their reporting. Ahmed Mohammed reports from Mogadishu. How to describe a militant group? It's a question in Somalia where Poyas, the government and the media, are puzzled over how to refer to a Shabab. In its latest order, issued Sunday, the government directed journalists to replace the word Ashabab with Khawarij, which means a deviation from Islam. Deputy Information Minister Abdurrahman Yusuf Al-Adala says the directive is a government policy based on the advice of Islamic scholars. He says, we are Muslim people. After these men, Ashabab claim to be Muslims and try to use Islam wrongly. The Somali scholars reached a decision and concluded that the culture of these men is the culture of Khawarij, and therefore they are recognized as Khawarij. Samia Ali, a freelance journalist in Mogadishu, says the directive could put journalists who already work in a dangerous environment at even greater risk. She says the term Khawarij could endanger the lives of journalists who do not have protection or bodyguards and are not using bulletproofs. He adds, as the media is neutral, we urge the Somali government not to force the media to use the word and rescind its decision. The minister says the directive is not aimed at suppressing freedom of expression. He says journalists are of course guided by rules, regulation and journalistic ethics. We stand to encourage freedom of opinion encourage democracy, and encourage freedom of speech. And journalists are required to report what's right. So the correct definition of these men is that Hawarij. What we stand for is to protect the lives of journalists. Of course, every journalist is an enemy of these men, al-Shabaab, and that is why they kill journalists and harass them. Somalia is one of the most dangerous countries for media with rightist groups saying militants are responsible for many media killings. A bombing in late October killed one journalist and injured two others, including a contributor to VOS Somali service. Marian Saylor, the executive director and the founder of the Somali Media Women Association, says such attempts to change how media refer to al-Shabaab are not fruitful. She says, with these issues in place, the government orders the use of the word Khawarij and directs the media to use it. It will put Somali journalists in greater danger. It will cause fear and arrest. And it will increase the number of journalist killings because Al-Shabaab will directly target independent media, which they will see it to have sided with the government. Taylor told VOA that the journalists are not a party 
any conflicts and should be allowed to operate independently. Sela says the media knows what's legal and what's not. So in my opinion, I don't expect the term Khawarij can be implemented. The directive comes weeks after Somali media protested a separate order on coverage of Al-Shabaab. Although it's later arrested, the General Secretary of Somali Journalists Syndicate, Abdullah Ahmed Moumin, on what they say as security-related judges. Journalists have decried the directives, saying the actions put them in harm's way. Ahmed Mohamed for VOA News in Mogadishu. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehye Suhibi in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Shogun Chung, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.